All right, Josh Smith here, live in my Flat 5 studios. Today's guest is one of my favorite, not just guitar players, but artists. I think it's, it's got to be 20 years. I don't know what year the record came out, the Country Libations record, but I remember hearing that record and like thinking, with sorry, pardon my French, but who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like not, not in an angry way, like, you know, wow, this is really great. And then just, you know, following from afar, and it always seemed like this this you had this juxtaposition of of you know this blues guy with all this soul and the singing and then the jazz head and the heart which that's like i mean i'm always trying to balance all of those things in my mind and in my my head and my heart and all that so it was really inspiring finding you and hearing you and i've, I've been a big fan a long long time i wish we've gotten to hang more or play we never cross past that often which just bums me out but Hopefully that will change in the near future. Um, he's from Memphis. He's in Memphis right now, but he lives in New York. Uh, and he also teaches at Juilliard, which I heard is a decent school for music. I, I've never <laughs> read, don't know that much about it. But anyways, dude, thank you for being here. Everybody welcome Doug Womble. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. Was that, What year did that record come out, by the way? I mean, yeah, it's like, I think, 03. So. Yeah, wow. Yeah. We recorded no two, but yeah, that's that's been a a long time ago, um, and yeah, it was really fun to you know have an opportunity to make some of that music. It was kind of weird, you know, like a, people said, "Well, how do you describe this record?" I was like, "I don't know." It's like if if like Ornette Coleman and Robert Johnson got together and went to church. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good uh, description. So for people who haven't heard it yet, that they're going to be running to the stores right now. To go <laughs> well, if there were still music stores. If there stores. were still stores. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I think I bought it at a music store for sure. Probably Tower, actually. if I, It had to be Tower, probably. It's, it funny, was, you know, right? it's, it's long since out of print on physical, so you can find copies on Amazon for like $600. I'm like, who's going to pay $600? Who, who has a CD player? Like... <laughs> None of my cars have them anymore. None of my computers have them anymore. Nothing. It's crazy. But all right. So I start all these interviews by asking everybody about their family situation because it's really interesting to me. I don't come from a musical family. No, Nobody plays, especially guitar. So it was really random that the guitar ended up in my hands. How did it end up in your hands? And do you come from a musical family? Yeah, my mother uh, was the pianist in the church that I grew up in. And her father um, was, you know, just a, a, a living room guitar player, singer, you know. In fact, I have, I wish I had it with me, but it's at the studio right now. But I've got my grandfather's guitar. It's a 1963 Gretsch Corvette solid body. And that's the very first guitar that I touched. And so when he passed, I got to take, you know, ownership of that. And, um, you know, no professional musicians in my family, except for my mom who played at our church. But, you know, she was a full-time banker. She did this did, obviously on, on the weekends and stuff. But, yeah, we, we, we always grew up singing and listening to music and a lot of country music around and uh, a lot of church music, cowboy songs, you know. So, yeah, that was, that was kind of it. But I didn't really start playing. I was a clarinet player in, uh, in high school, and that was kind of my focus. And then when the summer before college was when I said, okay, I'm going to start really doing more than G, C, and D. And I started getting really serious about jazz music. And I just, I threw myself into it. Wow. Not so right before college, really, yeah. huh? That's amazing. So 
what did you go to college for clarinet <clears throat> no so i had i had a scholarship i had a couple of scholarships one of them was to go to the university of illinois on like a writing scholar like composition kind of thing you know uh-huh. and then back in the day if you had um I had I, I I did pretty well on my standardized tests. So if if you yeah. got above a certain score on this thing, you could go anywhere you wanted in in the state of Tennessee for free. So I decided to go to what was then called Memphis State. Now it's University of Memphis. I went. I said I'm just going to do this for a couple of years, and man, I just I got so into it. And they had a great program here. And then I wound up transferring to a school down in Jacksonville, Florida, where I met a bunch of my people I still play with today, all, all those guys on that record that you mentioned, we, we all went to school together down there. So. so at North Florida then? North Florida, that's right. Yeah, so I mean, obviously I'm not from Jacksonville, I'm from South Florida, but North Florida, for people who don't know, is one of those schools that you wouldn't think is you know, some great music school in the middle of North Florida, but it really is, it has a great scene there. Yeah, it was, it was great. My teacher was Jack Peterson, who started the Berkeley program in the early 60s. He taught like John Abercrombie and Mick Goodrick. And then he was in North Texas for many years and then uh, finished his teaching career out at uh, UNF. So, yeah, it was great. I dug it. Wow. So so then the high school years was was only clarinet pretty much? Yeah, but I was obsessed with guitar music, you know. I love guitar music. I mean, you know, growing up in the 80s, you know, I'm uh, Stevie Ray and Clapton and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, but but I got to see some of the great bluesmen. I got to see B.B. King. I got to see Albert King. I got to see some oh, Albert King. and Luther Allison, Gate Mouth. And these because these guys play Beale Street, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't always get into the clubs, but I could stand outside and listen. I was always into it. And then I liked other stuff. I Man, I like, you know, like. Paul Gilbert and Steve Vai and sure. you know, that kind of stuff and and Eric Johnson and all that music. I was just into the guitar in general. I just thought it was I thought it was cool and um, yeah. Man, well, Memphis. I mean, yeah, like you said, being able to go down to Beale Street and see. So you saw Albert King, huh? I mean, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I saw Albert many times. In fact, I've got a, I've still got this telly that I bought in about 80 probably about 1990 and um i've got uh my so my high school uh science teacher was in charge of the stables at graceland wow. one time she called me up and she said they, they were doing a i don't know if you know the big pyramid arena down on the river here in memphis i do yeah yeah it used to, it's now it's, it's a bass pro shop but it used to be a, um, a music venue and uh, basketball arena and stuff when they were doing the groundbreaking for that all that they were doing a blues brothers reunion Mm-hmm. They were all hanging out at the jungle room in, in Graceland. So I took my telly out there and I got Steve Cropper and Duck Dunn and Paul Schaefer. I got them all to carve their name into this telecaster. And a little bit later, I was uh, back in the day, I used to know Eric Gales when we were kids. I haven't seen him in many, many years. But one time we were down on Beale Street and uh, we got to go on Albert's bus. And so I've got Albert's signature with an exact an exacto knife carved into that telecaster. <laughs> Yeah, man. Wow, that's a, that's amazing. And yeah, so you were around seeing Gales back then as a kid, you know. Uh, you got How old are you? We're pretty similar I'll, in age. I'll be 49 this year. Okay, so you're closer to Eric's age than I'm 41. So, yeah, I mean, you would have been there right during all of that. Yeah. You know, did, what about his brother? Did you see little Jimmy King a lot? Of course, and and then Eugene, his older brother, played bass in his power trio, you know. So, yeah, I would we would hang out all the time at the music store, you know? 
and he was strings and things. It was no, the, it was called the Musitron, the Amro Musitron. Uh, although that strings and things, you know, back when I was growing up, that strings and things in Memphis had the Clapton brownie strap in there. So I, I would see that guitar, you know, all the time until they sold it for. I think I think he sold it for his Crossroads thing, but yeah, yeah, Gail, he was like four or five years younger than me, and I was, you know, or maybe a little bit closer in age, but he was younger. I, I just remember back then it, it made a big difference that someone three years younger than me was playing so much more guitar than I was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, what about Sean Lane? Did you ever run into Sean Lane a lot? So my first job was uh, at Subway, okay. and I I used to close, and Sean would come in after his gig with this band called the willies and he would come in and he would order sean was you know i i i always commiserate with him we were both real big dudes you know and he would come in and order two double meat foot long subs and about six cookies and he would sit there and, and i was just like man that's sean lane you know so i only i only got to know him a tiny tiny little bit because right when i was starting to play guitar he was already a local legend but that was really that was when that piece around this time in the early 90s that was when that power of 10 record came out yeah. and you know i knew some cats that would you know study with him i never had to take a lesson from him but you know he was certainly uh beyond anything i'd ever heard i mean what a player yeah yeah unbelievable man what a fertile scene but it's amazing to me hearing you tell me so i didn't quite realize that you didn't play guitar but you were obsessed with guitar how did that happen I think it's just the music that I was into, you know, again, growing up as a kid in the 80s, you know, you, you had a great classic rock station. So I was real into the Stones and, um, uh, you know, all the, I mean, I was way into Hendrix and Zeppelin and all that music. And then, I'll, so I started reading Guitar World magazine, mm. you know, and it was back in the day when it would be like, you know, you'd get Eddie on the cover and then the next week it'd be like Ingve. Or so all these other, you know, other kinds of music that I wasn't really that exposed to. But then when they when they would have an interview with Keith Richards or Pete Townsend or whoever, and then they would start talking about all this other stuff. So, you know, I just I think like a lot of people, which is ironic, I'm from Memphis, but then I'm learning about a lot of the blues guys from these British rock stars, you know. Sure, sure. And but that's kind of how it goes sometimes. You you take a circuitous path to, you know finding music that you like but i just man i don't know i think i mean i was obsessed with prince too like i was a huge prince junkie and you know a lot of this music was very taboo for me to where i grew up it was like you know very conservative you know uh -huh. the prince was kind of i don't know pretty <laughs> dirty you know tipper gore didn't like prince you know <laughs> so tipper yeah. gore didn't like anything to be honest like anything even 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 al at one point i guess you got rid of him but, um, so yeah, I just I, I think that was the thing too. I just, for me, it was always about making these connections. It was like I listened to Prince, and then when I got into Hendrix, I was like, oh, oh, I, I hear where that's coming from. And then when I got into James Brown, I was like, oh, Prince's rhythm thing. I'm hearing where that's coming from. Yeah. So I was into like you know all this blues stuff and T Bone Walker and, and and that kind of music. So when I when I heard Charlie Christian, because I got a Benny Goodman record as a clarinetist. Right. I heard that Charlie Christian stuff and I was like, this is like T-Bone Walker, but like fancier. What is that? Which it, it just completely blew my mind. The sound of it. 
Dude, I remember literally that exact same thought when I first heard Charlie Christian was this is like T-Bone Walker, but but fancier. Yeah, like more expensive is probably what I More expensive T-Bone Walker, yeah. Yeah. Porter, yeah. house Walker, I guess you'd call it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, so, and and that's amazing. So you, you get the Benny Goodman record because you're a clarinetist, and you, you know you want to listen to that amazing. But wow, yeah, I I just remember freaking out when I first heard Charlie Christian. Yeah, unreal. Yeah, yeah, it was airmail special. I remember, you know, and it was just so. I was and I was already kind of attracted to that sound of music and the swinging thing. So. Yeah. I said, man, I'm just going to. And then right around that time, my mom took me to see Harry Connick. And Russell Malone was playing. Okay, yeah. Russell Malone, I was like, yeah, I got to be able to, I got to figure that out. What is that? What's that about, you know? Well, what's crazy, though, is so you're coming at it from, I would assume you can already read music pretty well as a clarinetist then. Yeah. And so you, so you so you got a good musical foundation going already yep. but like you said you could only play g and d chord. you know you were a starting guitar player how how quickly were you able to kind of transfer some of your clarinet stuff or was it like you were starting from square one because that's something I'm, I'm i don't play any other instruments so i can't relate 100 percent. totally square one and then it i think for for quite a while i wasn't really able to read very well on the instrument just because I could, you know, I took piano lessons and obviously I played clarinet, but it's like, you know, on, on the clarinet, there's maybe a couple of notes that you can play with different fingerings, but for the most part, it's like the note is what it is. And, I, and guitar always messed me up because of, you know, being able to play this same note in three or four different positions, you know. Mm. But ironically, one of the things I recommend to people is if, if they want to learn how to read music on the guitar is get the clarinet book. It's the close clarinet method because it's the same range. It goes yeah. down to the low E. And it's such, I, I still do sight reading out of that. When I'm, when I'm in a reading mode, I pull out the close a book and read that stuff all day long. But it was, you know, I'm lucky that I had a, again, my teacher, Jack was really hell bent on getting us to be good readers. And um, I mean, back when I first moved to New York, there was still a lot of jingle work. And so I would, I could go in and knock out a session quickly. You know, it was like, I could read voicings and, you know, so uh, I definitely am a better a better reader than I was initially. I, it it made no sense to me. I was completely an ear an ear player. Wow. So I mean, so your focus, not just you know in what you wanted to play, but probably just in life, rapidly shifts. Then if it's right at the same time you're getting ready to go to college, anyways, 100%. you know you're going to go for composition. But next thing you know, you're changing your main instrument. You're changing your focus. I mean, and that and that in turn changes kind of where you think your life is going to go because you're making all those decisions at the same time. Yeah, I mean, and, and the composition thing was like an English major. Not It wasn't even music related, you know what I okay. mean? Okay, all right. I wasn't yeah. even, like, I kind of wanted to go to Berkeley, but, you know, I would have I would have probably quit playing music. If I'd started Berkeley as a freshman, I wasn't ready. Okay. You know, and I'm also, I was also on the young side, too. Like, I didn't turn 18 until, you know, like a little bit into my freshman year of college. So, like, I think... Going from Memphis to Boston, I think I think it would have eaten me alive. Not to mention the environment of all the play. I mean, what am I going to do? Am I, like, I'm going to go show up there with Kurt Rosenwinkel and still want to play guitar? No, <laughs> I, I would I would have quit and and moved back to Memphis and become a banker. <laughs> you know what's funny? I I've never actually said this out loud, but 
so when I was finishing high school, I had already gigged, been gigging for years, like literally for since I was 12 years old. And I knew I wasn't going to go to college, but I had gotten scholarship offers to many schools. But I was scared of what you just said right there, because I felt like, man, I'm just this blues guitar player. And, you know, people think I'm hot shit, but I'm going to get there and there's going to be these all these jazz guys. And that's not me, you know, and I'm going to embarrass myself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a bad mentality, because I think you you realize that, like, in any college environment, especially or any other environment, any musical environment. It's like, it's so great to be around people who you learn so much from, from people who are not at your level, whether they're below you or above you, it teaches you different, different things. And, and then there's, I have students at Juilliard that are like amazingly just gifted in one area of music, but then they really struggle with other things. And there's other students for whom that's the, the inverse. And I think that you can get these around, you know, we have a young woman now that's um, this guitar player. She's from India, and you know, just she was so hungry to play music. Like she would drive, like it took her like six hours to get to her lessons in Mumbai, and yeah. she just loves. She loves the blues. She loves Jimmy, and she loves Albert King and Stevie Ray, and she just this little girl from a remote village in India. She finds it. She's got this feeling. You know, when she came to school, her harmony wasn't like up to up to par. But now it is, you know, because she's been and all these other people are like learning how to play slow, listening to her. Because it's, it's it's hard sometimes for young people to play slow. So yeah. I, I love that. Yeah, man, that's it's it's funny, like thinking back to the the years of the beginning and the just the amount of enthusiasm and hours you put in and then hearing something like that, like someone driving six hours for a lesson because they just need it that much and they love it that much. It's like, oh man, <laughs> I, I forget inspired. how. Yeah. yeah I'm so inspired so much... by them. Oof. Yeah, they make so me practice fun. more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So you, you're in college, you're, you're playing. What's your first guitar gig situation then? It's funny you mention that because just the other day I went to a brunch gig uh, and sat in with this lovely woman named Joyce Cobb. Joyce uh, was a soul singer and she's from Oklahoma. But she was kind of on the scene in the, she was on stacks in the seventies and um, just, yes, indeed. Joyce is just an amazing uh, musician. She sings all styles of, of, of music and she's like 78 years old, still playing her brunch gigs and killing it. So she gave me my first job. She was, I used to accompany her vocal students at the university of Memphis and she gave me a gig in 1990. Um, uh, down on Union Avenue, this place called Sleep Out Louis. It was a trio gig uh, with me and her and a bass player and a keyboard player, quartet gig. And she would just call tunes. And if I didn't know them, she's like, well, you got a chorus. You should know it by the end of the first chorus. <laughs> and so that's kind of what she, she kind of taught me that I had ears I didn't know I had. We'd be playing, you know, Duke Ellington tunes or Bob Marley tunes. We played everything, you know. And I was able to pick them up pretty quickly and I don't have perfect pitch, but I've got a good relative sense of, you know, harmony and stuff. So that was it. That was the first gig, 50 bucks, sleep out Louis, 1990. And she's still going strong. That was my first, my first gig. Wow. And I mean, so what, what, I didn't ask you this, but what did your parents think 
like when you you know started diving headfirst more into this guitar thing as opposed to what you were actually going to college for <laughs> yeah well i mean that's the thing is that i did this because i had this scholarship to go to a state school here i just i, I did focus on music my first couple of years because my plan was is like i'm just gonna study music if I'm getting nowhere after two years, I'll shift, I'll change my major and go into something business related. Okay. So they were, you know, it was just me and my mom, you know, I'm an only child, single mom kind of thing. Okay. My dad was not really, he didn't get the music thing at all. He was, you know, he wanted me to be a football player. He's a football coach, you know. Okay. My, my family were very supportive of me playing music, but I think that given the, the, sort of, again, this, the, the, just the conservative Southern Baptist culture that I was raised up in, you know, I think they were very concerned about, you're going to be playing in places with, you know, alcohol and loose women. And I was like, yes, I, I, I've heard of the, heard of these things. Uh, but then wow. once, once they saw that I was doing okay with it, and they saw pretty quickly that I was like, I had a, I've always had a good hustle. So I know how to hustle to get work. And they were like, okay, he can actually do this. And I would, I kept doing it and then eventually they were just like it was just foreign to them if you if, if you've never seen a, you know the, the life of a freelancer if you don't know about it it yeah. seems really crazy like why would you do that yeah i mean my parents while they were incredibly supportive i'm sure they were i'm not i'm sure i know they were very worried that i would never be able to own a house pay my bills have a family any of those things and my grandparents were furious with me you know that i was <laughs> not going to go to college, not going to set myself up, you know, to, but you're right. They, they just don't have any frame of reference for anything like that, you know? And, but they did see the determination in my eyes and, and in my heart, you know? And so they, they just kind of let me go, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it, do you, I don't know. I mean, it, sometimes like, uh, do I have a choice in this? This is what I do. It's just no. what I do. Like I, I, I could, for me to do anything else would be such a, huge shift in thinking and action i just you know well dude we've all so we all i mean jesus the life of a professional musician is you know a roller coaster with lots of peaks and valleys so we've all had those times when it's like do i get a real job right now like things kind of suck and even my wife has been so supportive of don't go get that job because i won't want to be around you if yeah. you go do that job you know because I'll probably be a dick. <laughs> yeah, you don't want that. Yeah, want exactly. That. So, yeah, it is. It's a weird thing, and and uh, but we, we you're right. We don't have a choice. So, man, when do you start entertaining the idea of not just being a guitar player, but like you know being an artist, like having your own voice? When do you start writing? When does that stuff happen? Almost from the beginning. Yeah. Um, okay. I think it was I think it was just the, the the people that I really looked up to at that time were I mean I think it was like a, a, in 1990 Branford his trio came through it was supposed to be a quartet but Kenny Kirkland got detained in Chile or something on a sting tour so it was just a trio gig mm. and I'd already seen that sting movie bring on the night and I just oh, yes. thought Branford was the coolest just yeah. so cool right yeah. And also from a band leader perspective, I was like, I want to, you know, it was, it was kind of superficial. Like, it's like, I want to, 
I want to play that kind of music and wear that kind of suit and, <laughs> and, and have that kind of vibe. Like it just seemed, it seemed so cool. Yeah. So I would start, I started writing. And, and then when I went down to Florida, I got really deep into Mingus and Ellington and some of the music that Winton was making back in the day, the septet sort of extended piece thing. So I just would write music all the time and uh, write these long form pieces. And, and so I had all that stuff. And um, then I also had a, you know, a side of me that liked to sing and write songs with lyrics. I wrote, a, I've got like a whole bunch of tunes that are like sort of in the style of, you know, Gershwin, Van Heusen, American popular song stuff. And, and I'd, I was also into free jazz. I'd write some, you know, whatever I was into, I would just start writing like it, you know? Right, right. And that's kind of been my thing is just like, whatever, whatever I'm into, like, I don't, I don't know what I, do I play jazz? Yeah. But I also love like Chris Whitley and, yeah, and, you know, Jeff Buckley. And I also like country music. I mean, I just, I don't know. It's, to me, it, I don't, I just like it all. I don't want to, I, I, I get really bummed out if I, do one thing too long, you know? <laughs> that's a, okay, so that's an interesting subject because I've suffered from a slightly second-guessing myself over the last 30 years on why, you know, why do I do a record like this and then make a record that's totally different and then do this and then do this? And it's not by plan. It's because, like you said, you just do what you want to do. You write what you want to write. You get inspired by what you get inspired by. Do you think it's, I mean, it's it's definitely made you the musician you are and made you better in all regards across the board. But has it hindered you in any way in the pursuit of, you know, whatever, spreading the gospel of Doug Womble, you know, by not having a more defined thing or something? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I also, you know, I can look back now and see where I made some errors as a... I, I, I often, you know, talking about how I looked up to Winton and Branford... That's a good thing, but I also think that I was at times thinking of myself as being a little further along the path than I actually was. Okay, yeah. So I learned some tough lessons from that. Because like when my first record came out, it was on Branford's label, you know, and that was really cool. And it it got a lot of traction because of, it had this element to it. I think it was it was listenable. A lot of it was listenable and. There were vocals on it. It was, you know, down home kind of feeling with some other yeah. influences and all that. And I was kind of, I was making some inroads into that, like NPR kind of world, you know? Sure, yeah. And then when I did my second record, I was like only thinking about, you know, what I wanted to do to push myself and my and my band into being a better band, like Branford always does with his groups, you know? But the difference yeah. is no one knows who I am. And it's like Brantford had already been like toured the world with Sting and played on this night show and been on the Fresh Prince of Bell. Like everybody knew who Brantford, he was as well known as you could get at the time sure. as a band player. Yeah. So I kind of was thinking, oh, I can do whatever I want. And, 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 and I wasn't, I didn't, I was I didn't quite have a good established career yet. Yeah. And then this sort of all happens like when, you know, my, Kid was born in 05, and I really took some time off to just throw myself into being. I didn't want to be on the road all the time. I wanted to bond, do the fatherhood um, thing, and no regrets there. But when I decided to sort of get back to the playing thing that coincided with the crash of 2008, then I, I found myself kind of without a label. I started over. I got a record deal 
to do like a singer songwriter record. Mm -hmm. And, and again, it's like when, you know, people would hear that they were like, well, what's, I thought you were a jazz player. Like, yeah, but then I do this too, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it's, I, I, I think that being, having my fingers in a lot of different pies has hindered me in the sense of would I, would I be more established and well-known as Doug Womble, the artist, if I had stayed on the particular, yeah, probably. Yeah. But I also, that, that path wouldn't have allowed me to have the relationship that I have with my 16 year old now, which is like, just right. as close as can be. It would, you know, I, I was, you know, able to, when I got divorced and I met Morgan and now like my, my musical and professional life and personal life are all intertwined with helping her. And I'm getting to do things with her that, you know, we're doing this big symphony tour next year. So I'm going to get to like write all these orchestral charts and right. play guitar in front of an orchestra, which I've always wanted to do. Yeah. So I don't know. I just, I, I yeah, I, I think this, the, the short answer is yes, I could have done things differently. But I sure do like where I'm at, man. You know, so it's like, well, yeah. I mean, you you end up where you're supposed to end up. But it is. It's like looking back. It's funny when I started playing with with Rafael Sadiq. So I had moved to LA, 2002, and I'd done nothing but play blues and release records, right? Yeah. And and then I made an instrumental guitar record, and I started to get more well known as a guitar player as opposed to a blues guy. But then I, when I was doing that, I was, that was when I was at the height of doing the most sessions I was doing all the time and going on the road as a sideman because I'd kind of given up on being an artist. So anyways, I get with Raphael, who I'm a big fan of, but I'd never met. I, you know, I'm just a fan from afar. Yeah. And I'd seen his career was so, his career is so incredibly diverse and weird. Yeah. You know, so anyways, I come into the scene with him and he makes that uh, the way I see it record. So we're playing straight up Motown and Stacks, you know, which is super fun and great and he has the most success he's had in a long time with that record but then refuses to make another record like it for the next record which is what everybody wanted him to do you know not that he refuses it's just he made the record he wants to make you know and it was a big eye-opener of wait a minute this guy's way more successful than me and has all these grammys and has done all these things and he doesn't, he just does, again, I saw it firsthand, he just does what he wants to do and releases the music he wants to release and doesn't worry about what anybody thinks about it at all. So it was eye-opening in that, you know what, it's like, everybody's the same. You just got to do what you, what you what's right for you, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I of course, I, you know, I wish I had learned some lessons earlier in life. We all do, but it's okay. I, I'm just, I, I, I have such a... Um, I don't know. My life is so, uh, especially after this this year, just the fact that like we're we're still standing. You know, our we have yeah. families that support us, but it was a tough year for people who do what we do. And I'm still here. You're still here, man. It feels it feels good. I feel like there's a lot of good things on the horizon, and yeah. we've got a little ways to go to get get out of these this darkness that we're in with this pandemic and all that. But it's it's I definitely feel an optimism that I haven't felt in a long time, which I'm really, I'm excited to, you know, yeah. and I, I'm excited to just play more. You know, I think I've been such a homebody whenever I'm in New York, I don't go out and play. And I'm starting to do a little more of that, starting to get out there and play some more jazz gigs, book some 55 bar gigs and smalls yeah. and do those kind of things to just to get, get a little more 
uh, on the creative music front. I miss I miss some of that stuff, you know. What year did you move to New York, by the way? I lived, uh, see, I moved there in uh, 97. So I, I lived in Chicago for, I went to grad school at Northwestern and I was there for two years and then I moved to New York right after that. Right. And were you, were you moving for something specific or was it just, nope, I'm going to move to New York? No, I was, I, I've, I've always been very um, specific in my goals. Like it's not just, I want to do this. It's like, I want to play with this person. So I moved to New York basically for two people, for Wenton mm-hmm. and for Cassandra Wilson. I met Cassandra in the early 90s. She was a guest artist at my college, and I just I kept in touch with her for five, six years. And then when I got to New York, she was still on Blue Note at the time, mm-hmm. and she was doing a Miles Davis tribute record. And um, so that was the first session I did. I, I, was, I was in New York for a month, and I got, um, I got a gig with this other great singer named Madeline Peru. And we went on the road opening up for Sarah McLachlan in like 1997. I was, I was, that was the first time I've done a bus tour of playing arenas and all that kind of stuff. So my first six months in New York was like, I got this. Yeah. And then all, it all crashed, of course, as it always does. Yeah. But that was it. I mean, I, I called Winton when I got to town and he, we started doing stuff. He started to hire me to write, to play guitar on occasion. And so it was definitely I moved there to work with those people for sure. Yeah. Did you meet Winton th- through Branford? Which, like, who did you meet first? I met Branford first. Right. I saw Winton around that same time in Memphis. They they both played in Memphis that year, and then it was a couple of years later that uh, when I was in Florida, um, this trumpet player Marcus Printup was someone I went to college with, and he's been in Lincoln Center Orchestra since the mid nineties, mm-hmm. and so. When they, they did a gig, the Lincoln Center Band did a gig in Chicago when I was there. And I'd met Winton before that, but it was very brief, you know. But I, but I met him in, in Chicago. We played at a jam session. I sent him some music that I'd written. And um, he, he called me, you know, from the road. He was like, man, just listen to your music. And, you know, so he's, he's, I've kind of been on the radar with him ever since just sending him. Because a lot of my music back then was really influenced by his stuff. So, uh-huh. Yeah. That was, I met him after a gig and just kept in touch. He's very, you know, he always gives his phone number and address out to people. So keep in, if you keep in touch with him, then he'll, he's, he's such a great mentor to, to people. So, and then I met Bramford after I was in New York. I, I, I knew this guy from uh, back in the day, AOL used to have these jazz message boards. It was like jazz fight. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. So I knew this guy from there that, we were on there with, with Jason, the, the, the youngest of the Marsalis brothers. We're, uh, he was coming to town to New York for something. So we were going to have dinner at our friend David's house. David was a psychologist that lived in New Rochelle. Turns out he lives next door to Branford. So we go over to Branford's house. I talk a little bit. And at the time, I had been kind of getting, I was meeting with this guy from Atlantic Records who was coming to my gigs all the time. And he was kind of hemming and hawing. And I got a demo deal with Blue Note that didn't pan out. So I was talking to Branford about all this stuff and he was like, well, man, why don't you send me your shit? I, you know, I'm starting a label. Uh, you know, I'm, I've heard of you, but I've never heard of your music. So if it's terrible, then I'll just tell you that you need to practice more. And <laughs> so I sent him like five CDs, but he was the one that got it. Like, you know, was the, dating myself. I burned five CDs for him, but I gave him like some octet instrumental music. I gave him some sort of country libations this kind of music. I gave him some jazz trio stuff that sounded like a Maja Mall. And he was like, wow, what, 
well, so what do you want to do? And I was like, all of it. He's like, cool. And then he was, he said, this one, I really did this one of this live gig where you're playing like with a fiddle player and you're playing like Johnny Cash meets Ornette Coleman. Like, I want to do, let's do that. I was like, great, let's do it. So that was, that's kind of, it's kind of how that happened. Man. Yeah. Dude, you have a, a crazy, just musical path. Like it's a, <laughs> it's a very interesting path and it's led you to this unique thing that, I mean, definitely when I hear you play, I know instantly it's you. Like nobody <laughs> sounds like you, you know? And I think that's, it's so cool, you know? And obviously that's the goal always, but it's like, it's like we all, I think we've all just been told like to, to go make a soup and yeah. we've all got the basic same ingredients, but I could give you the same 10 ingredients that I have and your soup is going to taste different. Even if, even if, even though we, we we're going to be coming from the same recipe, yeah, the way you season it is going to be different, and that's that's the beauty of it. Is we find, especially as we get a little older, when we move out of our emulation phase. Yeah, this is what I sound like, for better or for worse. And I'm always trying to get better at that, but it's I can't run from who who, who I am, you know. Yes, yeah, certainly. But I mean, you, you're right. You make like little choices. At least I did along the way. There were all these little moments that now ring so clear, and I remember them vividly. Of like left turns that were really intentional like yeah. oh i've never done this before this this sounds more like me i go further this and then go further you know and it was like I, I i don't know that i knew it as clear at the moment but i know it now looking back all those little moments yeah yeah crazy man let's uh let's jump into these 10 questions do it fire away number one when you started learning and playing guitar, at least, uh, what was the first riff or lick or something that you got under your fingers that you were so amazed that you figured it out? It like, you know, set the hook, lit the spark, whatever. You know that feeling. I can't believe like I got this. You know. Um, I can think of, of two things. One of them was like, I realized that as I started to play the instrument, I had all this information in my ears that I didn't, that once I figured out the decoding ring of my fingers, <laughs> that I could just play things that I'd never played before, but it was already in my brain. So there were two things that, that I figured out. One was the, um, uh, I think it's Can't Buy Me Love. Is that the one? Yeah. I was just like, oh, that's that. I can play that. And the other one was uh, well, you need because I was really into this Kenny Burrell record where he played "Well, You Needn't." I was learning that solo, and so I learned "Well, You Needn't." I was like, "Oh, that I see how that works," and it was like, "I might, I might be able to do this." Like something about it made sense, even though I was looking at the time. I didn't, I didn't see the fretboard as the interlocking shapes of voicings and notes and everything. I was just looking down and said, "Oh, that sound looks like that. I can do this." crazy yeah those are two very disparate things too. <laughs> well there you go that's that's me in a nutshell right <laughs> yeah well you need it and can't buy me love <laughs> uh, <laughs> featured on my new album can't buy me monk the music of lennon mccartney and polonius <laughs> that'd be a hey man you just found the next the theme <laughs> there you go uh okay so along the same lines number two is do you remember the first solo that you ever had to learn note for note one that just moved you so much 
Yeah, it was. Um, uh, Kenny Burrell. Yeah. Kenny Burrell on uh, Freight Train, that that, that the record with John Coltrane. Um, yeah. I learned the melody, which Tommy Flanagan wrote. And I can still this to this day, you know, Kenny Burrell. And when I learned that, oh man, it took me a long time because that tempo was above my ability at the time. But yeah, that one, that one was the one. Dude, that record was so important to me because it came. I found it at at a time when jazz felt like something like I'll never unlock. You know what I mean? Like, nah, what's the? I just play blues and blah blah yeah. blah. And I bought it literally at a truck stop off a tape spindle. You know what I mean? Yes. And it was the first jazz that I could like hear myself actually. Like, I think I could play that. You know what I mean? Like, and it was because obviously the tunes were more like up my alley, you know, but it was that, that monumental for me. Yeah, definitely. And he's so rude. I mean, that's the thing. It's like that kind of jazz guitar playing to me is is everything, you know, as as history has gone on and the the the, the sound of like the straight eighth and the delay pedal, it's beautiful stuff. But like that's that that kind of sound that's rooted. It's you can tell that Kenny had all this other I mean, he's from Detroit. He had the blues in him, you know, played on James Brown records. Like, he just had, like, so much going on. Yeah. Well, I just, my dad had a big record collection. And while he was a rock guy, he had Monk. He had Giant Steps. He had Kind of Blue. He had uh, some Mingus. He had Art Blakey. So I would hear stuff. But I remember, like, one time he put on Giant Steps. And as a 10-year-old, it felt like, yeah, I don't, I don't get this, and I'll, I'll never be able to play that. You know, can you put Albert King back on? Yes. <laughs> and so when I heard that record with Kenny and John, it was like, wait, this is the same guy from Giant Steps, and I, I can relate more to this, you know. And it was a kind of a gateway for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's the first thing you play every time you pick up a guitar? Your hands go autopilot anywhere. Yeah. Um... I uh, I generally uh, play so it, it, so if you're like an A flat seven chord right where you just, you put your middle finger down on the on the A flat and then the seventh the third the sharp eleven and then the open E string is your sharp five it okay. sounds like a monk chord so yeah. I pretty much always I hit that and I go and yeah, almost every day. That's what I and and then I do. I've I've got some warm ups that I that I do that are picking things. But yeah, I generally play that. That's the first thing I play is A flat seven flat five sharp five. <laughs> so I want a jazz nerd. I'm so embarrassed that I said that. I sh I should say John Lee Hooker, but I'm gonna I'm not gonna lie to you. <laughs> jazz alert. Jazz alert. So what about like when you get to a gig, especially like a backline scenario? Yeah. And you have to, you know, we all have that run or something that we do when you first flip standby to see if shit works. Yeah. What, what's your, what's that formula for you? Um, I usually either play um, the uh, the guitar solo from Kiss. That lets me, I that gets me to test the where the amp breaks up. Uh -huh. I want it to be, I want it to be really clean. I want the I want the clean sound to be unimpeachable. So I, I either play that, or I'll play like um, 
like a born under the born under a bad sign lick like i'll play that (laughs) (laughs) nice oh man again it's all coming into focus for me now why your music sounds the way it does and why you do (laughs) uh all right number four this one i'm curious uh what key style song groove is the most uh frequent visitor to your mind when you're unoccupied when you're like just cooking or walking down the street for me it's it's a shuffle it's always a shuffle that comes in normally it's in b flat and i'm just hearing something swinging whether it's wes or bb king it's something over that you know what what are you hearing most of the time a slow 12 eight so when i was when i was a kid and i would i remember we used to go sometimes we'd see the memphis symphony and i remember one time seeing the blue danube they play the blue danube waltz and when i hear that to me that sounds like boom 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 ding, boom 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 so that's in, in my brain is always sort of like A slow twelve eight is kind of that's kind of my default in the key, in the key of D flat is my favorite key. So. D flat is your favorite key. Like a very guitar player key. Every, all, we all love that key. Yeah, because <laughs> we want that open E string in there. That's yeah. The sharp nine works great. <laughs> oh man, yeah, it was such a Jimi Hendrix key. You know what I mean? It's, totally. it's, it's, it's yeah. All right, twelve eight. Are you hearing it like Steve Jordan when you're playing that? I'm hearing it more like, um, <laughs> like, uh, you know, kind of, kind of like the, uh, like maybe, um, like, like almost a Duke Ellington groove. Like I also love that, 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 that it's such sweet thunder groove, which is like, yeah. yeah, I'm all about it. Yeah. Nice. Uh, as an aside to that question, hmm. When, when you hear a piece of music you've never heard before, when something comes on completely fresh, do you uh, ever take stock of, like, what's the first thing you, you pay attention to or do? Is it different in every scenario? Like, for me, it's, I would say 80% of the time I'm, I'm starting to blow over the top of it in my head, like some sort of improv. Uh, are you more get, analytical about it? or? I get, or? Yeah, I get structural. I'm just like, what's funny is... is um, watching I've, I've only recently started watching those rick beato videos and it's like how he how he listens to music is pretty much like we we would get along because like when he puts on a song it's like okay yeah okay so it's gonna go from c to a okay great so it's, it does that and then he you know that that's what i do i'm, I'm like what's the progression mm. you know is there going to be a different section to this song like i, I think about that and then yeah I, I probably think about like and I initially start going into the mode, particularly after this last year of like playing all this duo with Morgan quarantine mm-hmm. together. I'm, I immediately start thinking about how can I orchestrate this tune by myself? Mm-hmm. What are the voicings going to be? How can I get the, you know, bass line and the, I like to do that. I like to, I like to find out whatever I can pick and choose. And I think that's from, you know, Tuck Andrus was a huge influence on me early on, you know? Okay. Yeah. As he was to Charlie Hunter, you know, it's like oh, yeah. he, he was the guy that sort of said, "Okay, all this stuff is possible that you didn't know was possible." Mm. You know, so that's so I think about him a lot. Yeah, he's someone who doesn't for some reason doesn't come up as much 
anymore like he used to, you know? Yeah. It's, it's weird. Uh, yeah. He's a, a one-of-a-kind player, too. Just really, um, I think the first time I heard that, his version of I Wish, yeah. where he gets the bass line and the, and the clav thing going simultaneously, I was like, that has to be an overdub. Then I saw him do it. I was like, oh. Yep, crazy. Uh, number five. When did you feel like you started to find, maybe you don't even feel that way yet, but like you started to find your voice on the instrument, you know, do, do you remember when it when it felt more like it was you that was coming out of there? It's a great question. Because I think that I've really struggled with that. I think that, um, I think that I kind of had, I think I sort of had found what my voice was a long time ago. I think more of the bigger issue for me was being able to be okay with it. Oh, okay. Um, I think just just maybe having some personal insecurities and feelings of like, you know, when I moved to New York, you know, it was the heyday of Kurt's band. And I used yeah. to see them on Tuesday nights at Smalls. So I was like, you know, this is a guy that, you know, everyone he's paying attention to, he's doing something that's of tremendous value. Mm -hmm. And uh, I absolutely feel that way today, but I, I think that he, he dominated the New York City jazz scene so much that everybody for the next 15 years was some version of him. It's how powerful of an impact he had. And I don't play that way. I can't play that way. <laughs> and I think that used to bother me. It was just like, I thought like, oh, well, I have to be able to do all this kind of stuff. And I think it was really over the past few years being kind of really understanding, oh, I do kind of have this thing that I do that's weird. And it's also like, it's not for everybody. Like it's not, you know, it's not the sound of the day. It's not what a lot of people maybe want to hear in their sideman projects, but that is what I do. And I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of comfortable with that in a way that I definitely wasn't when I was in my thirties, you know? Yeah. That's interesting, man. Cause it's, it's one thing to, yeah, to know that you, you found something, but yeah. Do you, do you want to, is that, are you comfortable with it? That's an interesting thought that I've never quite considered. Uh, yeah. And I think for me, I was just in, I was too insecure about just what I, who, who and what I was that I was trying to be something else. And, um, you know, you, you can't run from yourself, you know, you well, when you like, when you like so much stuff, it could be, I guess, maybe slightly easy to overlook what really is, Hey man, this is me. This is what I should not, not should, but meant to be doing, yeah. which I do believe there is some of that to all of what we do, yeah. you know, when, but it's like, but yeah, but what about all this other stuff that I really love? And it means a lot to me. Yeah, but this is you, though. You know what I mean? It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's there's an evaluation process in that. Like, you know, I was talking to one of my students. She she really wants to learn how to do more Holdsworth stuff. And I was like, OK, you're going to have to make some real choices then. And you can't play like Alan Holdsworth if you play the guitar like I do. Like, I can't execute what he does because of, I snort and grunt and I hit the guitar way too hard and I you have to be able to say, okay, I'm going to commit to this sound, this light touch in order to play that way. And I think that's difficult for a lot of people to say, like, to change the, the way they hold the instrument, the way they feel about it. 
in order to execute different kind of music. I think that sometimes the way you play does kind of dictate what kind of music you're supposed to be doing, you know? You know I'm, I'm saying yeah. the, the way you hold the instrument, the way you naturally, I've just always been heavy handed. So there were certain things for me that I think was going, I was going to gravitate towards more, you know, more blind Blake than John Fahey. <laughs> you know, it's like. <laughs> oh, man. That's good. Yeah, Holdsworth, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a choice. If you want to go, yeah, you've got to change everything you want to do if that's what you want. Yeah, yeah, crazy. All right, number six. What do you consider your biggest weakness on guitar? Um alternate picking okay yeah i um again this is it's kind of related to the other question but like you know i i pretty much believe in the power of the downstroke i, yeah. I think that you know when you listen to charlie christian I, I i just try to i try to use alternate picking only when necessary like when i'm especially when i'm playing like mostly anything i just i like the, the sound of a downstroke above all else hundred percent. I'm I'm with you on that. You know what I mean? And then I think that like as a you know, in, in, in certain kinds of music I've always just been I, I always at least in jazz I, I compare it to like um and there's lots of great recordings of them playing together, so you can hear like the Clifford Brown approach versus the Sonny Rollins approach. Okay. So Clifford Brown to me on the guitar is like Pat Martino. And it's just like or Benson, you know, that that kind of beautifully articulated alternate picking thing. Uh, that's not really how I hear. I hear. I hear more like Sonny, which is. So I'm all about the smear, and the, and the you know, all those kind of things. Like that's. So when it comes to like playing, like, I can play at any tempo, but if it's 400 BPM, I'm not gonna rattle off Pat Martino eighth notes. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna approach it like Louis Armstrong. <laughs> so that's. You know, I think that like alternate picking and having like a really precise approach to the instrument is definitely not something that uh, I'm great at. That's my biggest weakness. Poor technique. Huh. Do you think it's slightly pers uh, a choice as well, though, to some degree? I mean, I, I spent a lot of time practicing styles that I wasn't good at. And I think I think it's important to I, I really don't like it when people say, well, I, I know what I like. Because what I believe is you like what you know. Okay. And there's a lot of music that I don't connect to, but I still think it's important to know it. And just, you know, just, it's like, um, I, you know, I, I've, I talk to my students all the time. Like, if you, if you give me a choice between 1956 Miles Davis Quintet and 1965 Miles Davis Quintet, I'm taking the 50s every day. Uh. But the Herbie... Wayne, Ron, and Tony band is so important. You have to, if, if you got to know that music, you know, yeah. it's, but it doesn't, I don't connect to it as much. So yeah, there's a choice to it. Like I used to sit there and shed like, you know, Pat Martino solos and Benson and really get that alternate picking thing together. But that does not come naturally to me because it's, and it's, it, it's, I think it's like a, definitely you have to get to a point where it's like a, a fine motor skill that you keep up with, you know, you can't let it go. But I just had to be honest at some point, I don't hear it that way. I don't hear that level of execution that way. When I play things that are a higher speed, I hear it in a different kind of phrasing that my technique has to be adjusted yeah. to. So. And that, I guess that's the the more important point right there is the, yeah. the way you hear it is the, the guiding determining factor. For sure. Yeah.
Yeah. All right. Who's a big influence on your guitar playing that people would be surprised to hear? Um, James Hetfield. Uh-huh. See, I am surprised to hear this. Yeah. The power of the downstroke. Yeah, he's a pretty good alternate picker, though, too, when he wants to be. Of course, you know, but I just think that, you know, the, I, I'm not a, and I'm not really a Metallica fan, you know. Okay. Like, I grew up really digging. I mean, I heard, I had a, I had a dude who was in my homeroom for several years that was, like, way into Ride the Lightning, and he, you know. I That was, see, all my friends were Metallica friends. Yeah. So, even if I wasn't super into it, I heard it all the fucking time. And it was one of the first concerts I actually ever went to. I don't know how my parents let me go, because uh, it was before the Black Album, and they were big but not huge. Sure. And I could have got my ass kicked in that mosh pit. But, <laughs> but it was great. I liked the concert. The concert was great. Yeah, I mean, he's you know. So I just I I think it was watching that documentary, the Some Kind of Monster, and I was watching them, watching them rehearse with those bass players, and I was I was kind of like. I kind of got a, a, a hint into like how difficult that music is to play. Like it's, it's a thing. It's not my favorite thing to listen to, but I was checking out just his power mm. of how he plays downstrokes. And, and, and that really, it made me think about certain things on the instrument a little bit differently. Um, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it's a, probably the, the, the wackiest, um, <laughs> wackiest Doug Wommel influence, but yeah. Yeah. That's a good one, though. It's a good answer to that question. You're the first person to say James Hetfield. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, all right, number eight. On a gig, would you rather have a great amp and a bad guitar or a shitty amp and a good guitar? Definitely good guitar. Definitely good guitar because I am the least gear person that like, I just don't, I don't spend any time really. Um, I think again, because most of my life has just been like playing an acoustic instrument, like trying to get a sound out of a arch top guitar. Now my resonator that I play all the time. Mm. Um, I care more about that than anything else. I've got, I've got a, you know, I drove down to Memphis. So I brought a bunch of guitars and I brought my amplifier that I really like. I had this guy, this guy, Vintage Sound. He makes these nice custom Fender kind of amps. But, dude, honestly, like you give me a Backline Deluxe or Backline, like I, it, it, it doesn't throw me off at all. Like a, a crappy amp, I'll be fine. I just, I'm not a, uh, I definitely can't tell the difference between Everetti and Duracells and my Tube Screamer. I'm not, I'm not that guy. <laughs> Looking at you, Mr. Johnson. Yeah, yeah. You know what, though? He's not crazy. <laughs> no, he's not. But I don't, I'm just saying I don't have those ears. Same yeah. with like when, when people ask me, oh, what, what, do you like these jumbo frets? I was like, oh, are they, I don't, yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> I have different Dude, shapes, radius, all that. I don't know about that stuff. I just play. For someone as nerdy as, as I am, that's very refreshing for me to hear because I can't help myself but know all that stuff. I want to know and be able to explain it so that I can get it closer to what I really like, you know what I mean, and figure out what what is actually what do I enjoy, you know? So it's refreshing to hear the opposite side. Yeah, totally. I'm just I don't know anything. 
my friend, it's it's funny. Uh, I know my friend's met you a, a few times. His name is Ted Witcher. He's a uh, he used to live right around the corner from Sadiq's studio. Okay, yeah. But he's a he's a film director and am, amateur guitar player. And Ted is always like calling me up. He's like, "Yeah, you got to get this pedal," and you know, it's like cool. So I you know I get this stuff. And he's he's got a couple of like Cornish fuzzes and everything. Yeah. Those are those are better. I can hear that. But for for the rest of it, you give me a tube screamer and a you know a clon. I can't tell the difference, man. It's all just fuzz. It's all just dirt. I don't know. Well, but it's nice though because then it doesn't get in the way of your ability to make music, which can be a, a problem. Yeah, for guys. Yeah, to get obsessed with gear. Yeah. yeah. All right, number nine. What keeps you motivated to continue to grow as a guitar player and as a musician? I guess just in general. Like what 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 pushes you to to learn new stuff constantly instead of, you know, being comfortable with uh, where you're at as a musician musician I guess. I don't make any distinction between that and just life because one of the things that um, my wife and I always say is you can't take a day off from your relationship because if you take a day off, it can easily become a week, which can easily become a month. And then you find yourself married to someone that you're disconnected to. And so no matter what we're doing, if we're traveling together or apart, we're all, every day we water the garden of our marriage, you know? And I feel that way about music too. It's like, I just want, my whole goal in life is to look at yesterday and say, how could I have improved upon that? You know, I mean, it's been a challenge to how I've dealt with being down in the South during this, it's very, Mm-hmm. And it's very contentious, and some people will, you know, make snide comments if you got a mask on, everything. Without, but I'm always thinking about, okay, how can I deal with that in the best possible way? How can I be a good human to someone who's maybe not being a good human to me? Yeah, I'm not a Buddhist, but I try to act like them because they seem to have a lot to have in. <laughs> so that's that's kind of and with music too. It's just like I try not to be judgmental about things. Like if I hear something that. I want to investigate. I don't really care where it comes from, you know. I, you know, I heard I heard a track the other day on the radio by um, uh, Camila Cabello, Cabello. Yeah. Not familiar with her music. I've seen pictures, you know. And I was like, oh, this is kind of a hip little tune. Mm. I felt that. And then if I hear whatever it may be, I just I'm always just trying to figure out, you know, some something that I couldn't do yesterday. Can I do this today? And yeah. really understanding the impatience of youth, I think, is is difficult. Once you get a little, a little older, you realize that making this much gain in a day seemed like nothing when you were 25. But if you can do a little bit better by the end of a month, you've you've come this far. And i i like to I like to do that as mu- in music. You know, just try something new, learn something new, check out a tune, learn a tune that I don't like. <laughs> you know see what i learned from it you know well, learn learn a tune that you don't like that's something uh also that i like to do not just learn a tune i don't like but specifically listen for something not to make myself like an aspect of it but just find something that i like or respect about yeah. something yeah. that initially turns me off you know yeah that's the thing and i, th- I think again taking that lesson to, to humans and, and just being like there's a lot of people that I don't really like the way they are, but I want to. I want to try to find where where's the common ground that I can share with this person, 
mm-hmm. clearly looks at the world differently than me. And and because we still have to live on it together. And I'm not going to compromise my views on race or anything like this. It's not about compromising your beliefs, but I'm just saying if we can, if we're going to be that different, it's like when you get on the bandstand with someone and they're not a generous musician. How yeah. can I make that? How can I make that okay? You know, how can I? How, what can I do to make the situation cool? Yeah. And I fail a lot at that, but I, but I'm always trying. You know, it's a healthy outlet, man. <laughs> They're well adjusted. Well, a lot of therapy. A lot of therapy. <laughs> All right, number ten. Yeah. Where do you want to be then in in five years? Are you a guy who makes specific goals for you, for yourself? Yeah. Um, or you know, are you more fly by the seat of your pants, go where inspiration leads? I mean, definitely a healthy balance of both, but I, but I definitely feel that, you know, in, in over the next few years, I've, I've, I've really got some, um, some creative projects that I'm going to be working, working towards. Uh, there's a, a friend of mine that's working with a, a, a dance program in New York. I've, I've always wanted to compose music for a choreography piece of modern dance. Um, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I've got this incredible relationship with my wife where we make music together and I get to execute a lot of things through her career that are great, um, and, and very fulfilling. I'm gonna, I've got to come up with like a 60 minute extended piece for the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. Um, and I get to pick whatever, I don't know what I'm going to do yet. So I've been thinking about that and. I was supposed to make a record last uh, April that COVID postponed that was sort of like, you know, more of a, um, a, a country libations, like that path of like the, you know, finding finding the intersection of Ornette Coleman and Chris Whitley and Willie Nelson, mm. finding that kind of stuff. And I, and I mean, I've definitely, you know, you see my hat, like my, my, my mule resophonic has, it's the guitar I've been searching for my whole life. Uh-huh. That guitar inspires me every day because I'm like, this is what I this is what I want to sound like, and yeah. I finally found someone to make the instrument that you know that that does it. You know, well, it's cool because it, from from an outside, I have one obviously, but I don't use it the way you do. So from an outsider's perspective, watching you with that guitar, it seems like it's made it easier for you to drop yourself into all those situations and even more retain. Oh, it's just you on top of all those situations. Yeah. I can I can make that thing sound like Sun House or Kenny Burrell, yeah. And that's that's kind of what's the weird thing about me as a musician that I, f- I finally found someone to make an instrument that really I can I can take one guitar and I can play slide I can play bebop I can do whatever I want on it and it works for everything. Yeah. So that's that's you know I think I definitely want the next few years to get back to playing more in the jazz tradition because it's certainly what made me fall in love with music more and um, you know I've. I've been definitely changed by teaching has made me such a different musician and it's made me see my place in the world differently being a you know being a parent all this all that stuff you know yeah that's that's always what i'm what i'm just trying to be a little bit better than i was yesterday <laughs> yeah well that's a again a very healthy attitude ah. yeah dude uh, that's the end of the 10 questions but i had one extra question for you when when you work with your significant other as much as you do what when it comes time to like you know make musical decisions and an argument arises who wins i you know it it, i she's the boss i asked derek this question too 
and it, he says she's the, that Susan is the boss always, but I don't know if that's a hundred percent Morgan's band. And, and, you know, where we'll get into it is like huge decisions. We don't fight over. We will fight over a note when she'll be like, you know, I'll get into a little bit. There's things that she, that don't bother her. She's got incredible ears. I mean, she's, you know, got a degree from people who don't know they need to listen to your wife sing because she's incredible she's remarkable and she can sing any style of music she's great but when she starts layering in background vocals and stuff there's times where i'll be like oh that the chord is and and she'll be like well i don't mind i'm like we'll we'll fight over those things but um Uh, we but but we it's it's always fun you know it's just funny stuff like or or she'll like right now we're doing this, we're doing this thing that's a video project. So she's like, you know, very obsessed about what I'm wearing. And <laughs> I, don't have any, I don't have any dominion over that. It's like, put me in something that doesn't make me look like an idiot. I'll be fine. Well, what's funny is our wives always have some opinion on what we wear anyways, but it's different when they have an opinion on what we wear in a professional setting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were, I think we were very prepared for the COVID year because we spend all of our time together on a bus, on a plane, in a hotel. So COVID was actually not that big of a difference for us. And we, you know, we genuinely love each other's company. So I'm very lucky. <laughs> that's, that's very cool and very interesting because I've found, not that it's the opposite here, but definitely this is the most I've been around my wife and son for long stretches of time in 20 years. Yeah. You know what I mean? So they're probably fucking tired of me. Yeah, sometimes. it happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dude. Well, that's it, man. We made we made the end of the ten questions. Um, I'll, I'll have links. Oh, say hi. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, dude, I'll I'll have links to everything Doug Womble down in the description of this video. Thank you. And man. Uh, if you're not a ruler, you should become one, or at least subscribe to the YouTube channel by hitting this button here, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but, dude, thank you for doing this, man. I, I, I'm just a big fan of what you do. I'm glad we got to have this chat, and I, I hope we get to hang and play some in the future, man. Dude, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to come out west uh, sometime before the summer's up. So we'll have to make a hang. Well, please let me know if you get out here. You know, you got to come by the studio and just hang out. Let's do something. Sure, man. Absolutely. Thank you so well, much. Thank, for me. thank you for doing this and uh, have fun in Memphis. <laughs> All right, brother. Take care of yourself. All right, Doug. Talk to you later.